And just like that, it was all over. Or is it? This is the final episode of season two of Harriet's Election Overdose. It's Thursday, November the 3rd. And the very last double envelope votes have been counted right now at the Central Election Commission headquarters in the Knesset in Jerusalem. The Knesset, the 25th, which when its new members are sworn in in 12 days from now will be a very different one, not only to the previous one, but just about to every Knesset that preceded it. I'm Anshul Pfeffer and with me is my excellent co-host, Dr. Dalish Endlin. And look, let's not beat around the bush. This is Aretz and we can say it straight. We're all still a bit shell-shocked and all other types of shocked by the election results. For all the obvious reasons and perhaps a few other less obvious ones as well. But this is an election podcast and not a support group. So we're going to analyse the results together to the best of our abilities and try not to break down sobbing, at least not every other minute. So, the state of play. Like I said, the votes are now being counted. Last votes, the double envelopes. What are double envelopes? Double envelopes relate to the people who cannot vote in their uh, voting station where they're registered by their regular address. They have to be somewhere else, and they have a legitimate reason for being somewhere else, either because they are soldiers, or they might be in prison, or they might have had a le- some other legitimate reason. Maybe, they're, maybe they've got corona and they're staying home. Uh, but they have... There is a system for allowing them to vote elsewhere, and those envelopes are double sealed in a different envelope and counted separately. And they're counted in separately in one central location in the Knesset. About 13% of the vote, is, is, is that the number? About 500,000. Yeah, so roughly 12 to 13%. And uh, as far as we know, Phil, about half an hour ago, we're recording now, This is, it's 11, 10 past 11, about half an hour ago, the last update there were still 311,000 votes left to count. I'm using the excellent dashboard by the brilliant and acerbic data analyst, Nehemia Gershuni Ailho. If you want the link to it, it's on my Twitter. Uh, so, so far, 93.5% of the votes have been counted. Where are we? First of all, we are at the point where we raise a glass and say l'chaim, we got through another Yes, the customary election. final we, episode of Election Overdose is done with free-flowing booze. Definitely, and we are not going to sob because we are drowning our sorrows in very delicious whiskey. Now, where are we? We have been speculating for months about whether either of the blocks would get a majority, and as our listeners probably know, one block did get a majority. That would be Netanyahu's block of four supporting parties. They have finished this election with 65 seats. Uh, Likud has, and we can go through play by play, but Likud didn't actually do much better than in the previous elections. But from Netanyahu's perspective, this is the all-out victory that he has been hoping for. Uh, We have a devastating result for the left and certainly the entire uh, opposition bloc to Netanyahu, but specifically for the left, I think these are the big takeaways. Merits is not crossing the threshold unless there is some shocking result so from those double elections. So according to the elections. latest result, Merits needs 14,665 14, votes to pass the, thre- uh, the electoral threshold. That would be 4.7% of the remaining votes still need to be needing to be counted. That's, I think, already in the territory of a statistical miracle. It seems almost impossible. And part of the reason is that ultimately... A lot of the what we call the double envelopes essentially represent soldiers. And there are plenty of other groups, but that is the biggest group among them. And that group, as far as we know, it's not that they are necessarily particularly right wing. I often hear speculation that because they're in the army, they all tilt right. If they tilt right, it's because of their age group. Eight young people are generally more right wing, even than the general Jewish population, which is already about 64 percent right wing. But in fact, they're they're voting tends to break down not that differently from the 
regular Jewish population. But again, anyway, that favors the right. So so far, as that voting has proceeded slowly, ever since we got the initial real results on Wednesday morning, it hasn't changed the fact that Meretz remains below the threshold. In fact, Meretz has been creeping ever downward. For I think the peak that I saw was that it was at 3.23% of the vote, just shy of 325 but the last count I saw had it at 3.17, so the trend doesn't look good. In the very small outside chance that Meretz does finally cross the, th- cross the threshold, finding those votes, the overall result would change. It would go, Likud's block, Netanyahu's block would go down to 62 or 63. And there's an even greater miracle, which is really not going to happen. But there were some thoughts in election night when the exit polls first came out that it may happen that another party, which is that not, not that far from the threshold either, Balad, the Arab Nationalist Party, currently on 2.96%, 3.25% being the threshold, Missing still 22,000, well, close to almost 23,000 votes, not going to happen. There's not going to be 7.4% of the double envelopes. No, and absolutely for, for not, ballots. of course, because we know that the biggest group among the double envelopes is soldiers. It's very hard to imagine Many most of them voting for ballot. But I will correct you on one thing. Ballot is an Arab nationalist party, but it also stands for the idea of a state of all its citizens. And that in some ways contradicts its nationalism. And I do know that some and people- And they're pro-asset as well, yes. I know anyway, some people who have considered voting for them precisely because they want to make that point that Israel should be a state of all. Good for them. They wasted their votes. Us to die. I didn't say they did. I know they were considering. Um, But that's the state of play. Netanyahu is on track. Netanyahu blocks on track to get 65 seats. It may go down to 64. Um, That's where the play right now is. There is a much bigger chance of them going down to 64 than Merritt's crossing the threshold. The the result that we can expect is either 64 or 65 for the Netanyahu block. And the massive uh, elephant in the room, Netanyahu block, will include uh, four, currently 14 seat size. They could actually go up to 15 still. Religious Zionist list, including the Jewish Power Party led by Itamar Ben-Gvir and other assorted undesirables in that list. And he is the star of this election. Now, Angela, you were on the campaign trail with him on election day. What did you see? Well, I kind of have to make excuses when, 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 when you try and explain what it's like being with uh, Bengvir and his and his crew on the trail because you know, we always want to focus on his reprehensible views, quite rightly, and all the things that that are in his past and very much in his present as well. But I'm trying to focus now just on Itamar Bengvir as a campaigner, and he is a brilliant campaigner on the most instinctive level, I'm not talking about how he planned this campaign and how he coordinated things with Netanyahu and other parties of the bloc. That's, I think, quite significant as well. We'll probably get to that. But on on a very personal level, I don't remember many politicians who just go out on the street and really without any contrived artifice or anything, right, connects with them as on a very, very personal level. And I think that it does make you wonder about the voters. Does everyone voting for Itamar Bengvir necessarily share his views? I don't know. But I do know is that many, many people, and this is not just the typical religious right-wing uh, nationalists and so on, he he crosses, he, he really crosses the board of a wide part of Israeli society, including Haredim, including working class Mizrahim, but also I saw many people who, it was very clear that they were Russian-speaking immigrants, or formerly Russian-speaking immigrants, who came up to him and asked him for selfies and were very 
they certainly weren't repulsed by it. I don't know if, if they all actually went into the exactly. polling station and voted for him. But he has a way of cutting across that, you know, I, I, I don't remember seeing that in in recent memory of any Israeli politician. And people say Netanyahu is so popular. But Netanyahu, you can... He has been overshadowed somewhat in this election. But also Netanyahu, you know, there is a, it's an element of a show. The Itamar, Itamar Ben-Gris show is very authentic. So what I'm wondering is that I, I certainly saw that enthusiasm. We all saw what happened with him. Our ben came to the Blich uh, High School, and we saw, we discussed it on the show. This is a high school in the Tel Aviv area that is, uh, you know, pr- pretty much representative of the central urban regions, not so religious. In the end, not that many of those students voted for him, but he did generate huge waves of enthusiasm. I wonder, in the end, when we actually parse the results, what will be the demographic makeup of most of his voters? I still think it will be, you know, the plurality or even probably the majority who are religious nationalists. Some of them are ultra-Orthodox. Some of them are what we call modern Orthodox or national religious here. Some of them are going to be Masoretim, traditionalists. I still think that even though we're seeing that he has some cross-cutting appeal, when it comes down to analyzing the votes, it looks like there will be very few of his voters who were secular urbanites from Tel Aviv. And that's because I also went through some of the results by by um, locality. And you can see that there's overwhelming votes for the parties who are opposed to Netanyahu in the Tel Aviv area, for example. I don't disagree with, with that analysis. I think we'll, we'll certainly see that. And you're, we're already seeing that in the area by area and literal polling station by polling station data. However, two years ago, Itamar Ben-Gvir ran Jewish Power Party on its own. And do you remember how many votes? 19,000. 19,000. That's 0.4%. Did all of a sudden so many Ben-Gvir and religious Zionism per Jewish Power voters that were suddenly born or suddenly came of age and became 18? No. There is, a, there, is a, there is an acceptance which allows people to suddenly vote according to certain instincts and, and positions and, and affiliations. Those people were all there two years ago and didn't vote for him. But let's all re- also remember that two years ago, well, uh, in um, March of 2021, the party Yamina led by Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked got 273,000 votes. Now, Ayala Chaked's Jewish home party didn't even come near the threshold of uh, 3.25%. She got 52,000 votes this time, just over 52,000 votes according to the current count. So where did 220,000 Yamina votes go? Angela, what do you think? I mean, we don't really know right now. Well, we spoke about this last week when we talked about the pollsters' assumptions, and we said that the polls, the pollsters are assuming that about two thirds of the votes, both for Yamina and for Gidon Sarah's um, New Hope Party in the previous election, will go back to the to the Netanyahu block. And I said here, maybe the assumption is wrong, and maybe those votes will be more evenly distributed between the blocks. The assumption was wrong; those votes were distributed much heavier towards Netanyahu. I think the only votes that went or that stayed in the anti-Netanyahu block is a certain proportion of the Gidon Sao New Hope votes, which stayed with him. And that's the rise of, of Benny Gantz, which, which got eight and now they're on, ele- on 12, 11 perhaps. So probably half of New Hope stayed with the Gidon Sao. The other half went back to the Bibi block and nearly everybody who voted Yamina in the last election, voted either for Shaked. 52,000, but 220,000 left. We think it's about, it, it, it's probably one and a half seats. Okay, one and a half to two seats left, and all the rest came back to the Likud, uh, to, to, to the Netanyahu block. And just to, just to remind you that... Probably one or two seats worth voting for Netanyahu, 
and three or four seats worth right. voting for religious uh, Just to put this in a portion, the 220,000 that Yamina lost uh, is an interesting, you know, is a number that correlates nicely with the fact that religious Zionism itself rose by 243,000 votes. So there's clearly overlap. We won't know exactly which former voter for this party voted for that party until we see more sensitive survey breakdown overlapping with regional breakdown. But one thing that's interesting, I thought it was interesting, I don't know if you think it's interesting, is that Likud didn't really do very well in this election. You know, just again, looking at the absolute numbers, the final vote for Likud in 2021 was just over 1 million votes, uh, 1 million 66,000. The current vote with over 90% counted is 1,040,800. And so they've actually lost votes. Maybe by the time the final counts are collected, they will get just barely what they got last time. But compare that to Yair Lapid's Eshatid. Hold on. We're going to talk about Lapid okay. and Eshatid in the center left rose. in a moment. I know. But, but the that, point but, is but he but rose. But we're sticking now on Likud. Likud barely it, got a single extra Likud vote. Likud is actually lost. better in the seat allocation. They're going to get 32 yes. or 31 seats. They're going up one or two. But that's only because of the mathematics right. and the way the votes so are being why allocated. That? Why didn't Likud do better? Well, we're seeing, we're seeing the, the, the Bengvir effect. Now, we've said here a number of times on uh, on election overdose, and I've written it, Bengvir was threatening, it seemed, mainly the Haredi parties, but Likud didn't go up. The Haredi parties actually went up a bit, and we, and we should talk about them for a moment. But finish out with Bengvir. I think that Bengvir is... The, the new that those two hundred was it two hundred forty thousand votes that religious Zionism se- seems to have added from the previous. And don't forget they got six le- seats last election, yes, they did. which was in itself an achievement. People thought, will they even cross the threshold? They crossed the threshold well, and they got six. But now they've more than now, doubled. Their now presence. they're more than doubled. So those two hundred forty thousand votes, I think, come to a large degree from Yamina and from the Likud stay-at-homes from the last election. So Likud went down by 300,000 votes between 2020 and 2021. Netanyahu fought to bring them back, and a lot of them seemed to have come back, but they came back and voted Bengvir rather than coming back and voting Bibi. Right. One of the interesting things about Likud is that, you know, they worked so hard to get turnout up in the areas where they thought they would have more votes. And I just went to one neighborhood that was the subject of a Haaris Weekly podcast when they were talking about who are the non-voters and why is Likud so obsessed with the idea that they could get more voters in particular regions. And that episode was dedicated to Batyam. And Batyam has traditionally low voter turnout last time, and it is understood by the right to be a place where they can definitely pick up votes and probably Likud votes, and there was a lot of effort in general to get those people to turn out. Well, it seems like their turnout was just over 50%, which is well below the 71% final turnout of this election. And how does that compare to uh, Very similar to the last time. So it's almost like, at least in that one area, it didn't seem to work. So I'm still looking for those areas where the turnout went up, because it did go up overall. Last year's turnout was 67.5%. Now we're at 71.3%. 0.3, which is robust for any electoral It's process. robust, but it's it's less than 4% rise. It's not a massive jump. Now, people were thinking... I would thinking, consider that a substantial rise. Okay, but people were thinking, election number five, people are going to be tired, et cetera, et cetera. But I think one thing they didn't factor in is that election number four was an election taking place literally two weeks after a COVID lockdown ended. And I think that was one of the reasons why it was lower. Israelis, as you say... Vote, but sixty-seven percent was higher than some yeah. other recent cycles. Exactly. And seventy-one point three is the highest since twenty fifteen. Right. I'm just saying these these fluctuations they're important and we and we analyze them, but I don't think they say everything that we're trying to ascribe to them. People were voting, and another thing I think that that, that was interesting, and this is, I'm um, this is totally based on a feeling, but 
during the day until about seven in the evening, the turn because we get every two hours from the CEC the, the the turnout updated to that time. We were on track to to, to hit seventy five, seventy six percent, which would have been the highest in this century. It would have been, I think, the highest since nineteen ninety nine, and then it kind of tapered off. And usually, the actually the last hours are more busy. Well, at least that's been the case in recent so years. So, so I kind of thought, hold on, why are people voting more early? In this election, well, at least among the Jewish community, we have reports that That's in the true. Arab community, but I'm talking about the over, about the overall number. The overall numbers and Jews are also eighty percent, so the majority, and they vote more. So it's about eighty five percent of the. Voters. Oh, I think it's over ninety percent actually, because Could if well only be. if only half of Arabs voted, which is about the reports we're getting, we have we're, we're hearing fifty five percent, maybe fifty five percent. But remember, they're only about seventeen percent of the adult population. Anyway, here's my theory. And okay, you can, tell me your uh, and you can laugh at it, but um, <laughs> I'll, I think, I'll laugh before it. <laughs> I think the. Re- you're welcome to laugh before and after. <laughs> I think the reason laughing. that we had a, a heavier voting in the early hours is this election was held less than three days after wintertime began. And you know those first days when suddenly it's getting darker a lot earlier and you're feeling a bit different and you're kind of sort of starting to adjust your timetable and think, okay, you know, I'm staying I'm gonna stay at home earlier and so on and so on. I think people had the mindsets that it, the weather was actually much better than expected. There was all kinds of dire predictions of heavy rain in parts of the country. There was Still few, have had no rain. There were a few scattered showers, and that was it. I think that people rushed to vote more than they did before because there was nice weather. Because they were awake very they early. They were awake early. Exactly. Okay, and, I have a different theory. And I have theory. no idea. Maybe there is somewhere, someone, somebody's done a, 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 some a re- survey. research. No, I have how, a different theory. Of how, the t- how weather, you know, it's if it's just before or after winter time, if that changes voting patterns. I okay, think it did. There, have been re- there has been research on, weather, on, on how the weather, whether it's raining or snowing or windy or not, or nice days affect voting. But what I think is actually a more likely explanation is that I do think Israelis saw this, even though it was the fifth election, I think they took it very seriously. You know, there was a survey that I reported on in my last uh, poll analysis for Haaretz showing that, you know, like 25 percent would be mildly depressed if they're if the other side won. But like 30 something percent would be would think that their state was lost, that they lost their state. My state is gone. And so I think that at least half of the Israeli voters saw this as an existential question, even though it's number five. And I think that they were really trying, especially on the center left, which we can talk about uh, as we move on, although I do want to talk about the ultra orthodox parties. But I think on the center left, there was a lot of campaigning against specifically negative campaigning against Ben Gvir or against religious Zionism. There were some very extreme messages. Some of them I even thought were a little bit distasteful in poor taste. But we, we need more whiskey when we talk about this. But that became really a central focus of the campaign for... Wait, you're pouring me warm with more whiskey? Oh, wow. Okay. Now we're going to say it's all going to come out now. That became a really central focus of, uh, for the campaign of me- most of the center-left parties, with the exception of Yeshatid. Yeshatid ran a very constructive record-based campaign on their, their record for the last number of months. But I do think that for a lot of the center-left voters, they were thinking, I've got to get out there and do this. I've, I'm, I have no doubt that the center-left maximized their voter turnout. It just wasn't enough. Well, we'll talk about the, the center-left in a but few let's months. let's go back to the Haredi yeah, party. Okay, yes. so the Haredi party, something really fascinating happened. And I admit, I'm as an observer of Haredi politics for my entire career. And I'm an observer of polls and I was surprised. We didn't, we thought that there would be some swing away from the Haredi parties to Ben Gvir. Now I am, I know just from being out there that there were, there was, there were young, mainly young Haredi voting for Ben Gvir. At least, you know, maybe they were lying to me, but I don't, you know, I I didn't feel that they were just saying it to shock me. Maybe some of them went into the polling booths and, and suddenly their rabbi and their grandparents kind of appeared in their minds and they still voted for a Haredi party. But there was a swing. But at the same time, 
the Haredim maximize their potential in ways that we haven't seen in the past. And I'm talking here about very insight. I'm not going to go into all the names, but both Shas and United Torah Judaism did things that they hadn't done in the past. And I'm talking about going to certain rabbis who's, and we're talking here about micro communities. They leveraged the rabbis. Of a few thousand votes, perhaps. Certain rabbis who in the past had either discouraged their followers from voting at all because there's, you know, it's voting for a secular state, for Zionism and so on. Uh, And others who had perhaps not discouraged, but would never put out political statements or say this or that party and so on. And there was a very concerted effort to enlarge on the Haredi vote. Now, we tend to think of the Haredi vote as something which has already been maximized, and there are all kinds of jokes about about between two and four, the Kohanim don't go and vote because that's when the dead people come and vote. But there are also jokes about them voting at 110% turnout rate. That's all, you know, we've been hearing that for years, and lo and behold, they got to 120, they took it up to 11. And this was a really uh, 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 incredible organizational and, and and well thought out plan, both by Derry, uh, the leader of Shas, and by the various uh, groups uh, in United Torah Judaism, partly because they, they do feel, and they have felt in the last year, year and a bit, with Avigdor Lieberman as, uh, as finance minister, I think in a very exaggerated way. But exaggerated? They, they were chanting on election night, get Lieberman out. Derry had to tell them, stop saying that. It doesn't sound nice. We're sending him. He's going home anyway. But they were chanting, get le- get Lieberman out, get him home. There was a so feeling was of, about- of existential emergency, and the Haredi politicians used it well and managed both to raise their vote and to offset whatever they lost. And they did lose something to me. I would like to make an observation on something where I do have a little more expertise than on the Haredi internal dynamics, and that's polls. And I have to say that among all of the polls, we're talking over 70 polls that were published and all the internal polls, they were always getting 15 seats, seven for Torah Judaism, eight for Shas, and it never varied. Now, I have to do a mea culpa because somebody asked me, and if if that somebody is listening, I don't remember who you are because I had a lot of conversations in the last number of weeks, but somebody said to me, don't you think that the polls have a hard time estimating ultra-Orthodox because they don't want to answer polls and they might lie? And and I said, oh, no, we know how to poll ultra-Orthodox. It's a very stable community. They vote with very homogenous trends. They listen to their leaders. We know that they have very high turnout, so we can... We can compensate in in weighting strategies for any under-response rate in the polls. Well, all the polls were predicting 15 seats, and they ended up getting 19 seats according to the current count, 11 for Shas instead of 8. Basically, that was the major rise, and one more seat for Torah Judaism than they were predicted to get. I have to ask myself, and... You know, uh, I am lucky in this sense because I don't do the kind of media polling that is published and that people you know, hold to account. I do internal polls more, but my colleagues, I, I, whom I greatly respect, need to really think about how they um, understand the Haredi community, how they compensate for whatever non-response rates we have. And somebody got things quite wrong. Unless this was a really um, a very last minute mobilization effort on Election Day that surprised everybody. But I think they were missing trends along the way. But I. Uh- I'm going to defend the pollsters. Oh, We're kind of switching What's places. going on here? I don't think that pollsters can detect the kind of movements and the kind of mobilizations that were happening, especially in this election. But in general, in the Haredi community, it works in ways that are often, you know, like any religious, so, social religious trends, we often only see them many years after they've, after they've started. They're... And, and this is not like I don't think this is a huge issue. I think, I mean, I, you know, when we 
when the, when the history of the ultra, of Jewish orthodoxy in the early 21st century is written. I don't think this election will necessarily be a pivotal one, but like I said, it's enough to get a, a list of rabbis who each of them have a few hundred f- followers or families in their community joining for the first time in the endorsements. And in the Haredi community, you have massive lists and posters of this rabbi and that rabbi. Most of the time, even those of us who follow Haredi politics closely, we kind of look at the list and our eyes glaze over at some point. But for some people, that one one rabbi is suddenly his name appears and he never appeared there before. So maybe the pollsters is, should be polling the rabbis in addition to the general public. Let's talk about the other side because there are interesting dynamics there is another, here. There is another side. There oh, is. Yes. It's going to be the opposition. And in fact... The best calculations I've seen, one of the interesting numbers going around are the people who tallied up all the absolute numbers and percentages who voted for parties that support Netanyahu or parties on the other side. And those blocks are so completely tied that depending on which count you're looking at, the difference between them could be as small as 3,000 votes. I've also heard 8,000, but once the final votes are in, I will do my own tally. But we're talking about a few thousand votes between those big blocks. And it could be at the end that the anti-Netanyahu block will have a few thousand more votes. It's, it's perfectly conceivable. Unlike the merits miracle, it is something that is not only conceivable, it's probably 50-50. But what, what, what is the merits miracle? Merits lost 62,500 votes and is currently under the threshold out of parliament for the first time since it was established. So we're talking about merits now. Yes. We're starting with merits. Ouch. You raised it. Yeah. So merits. I'm old enough and young enough that in every single election I've... <laughs> We're not going to compete about who's older here. Well, the first election I could vote for was in Israel was in 1992. That was the first year in which Meretz ran. It was the the first and best. First and best. Meretz, for those who don't know the Meretz history or don't remember, a merger of three, two two left-wing parties, socialists, Mapam, civil rights, rats, and what we could call a centrist, secularist uh, party Shinui. Shinui actually left the Merits block uh, after a few election cycles. And Shinui has had a very interesting history in this country. We should do a well, whole episode about it. But maybe if we have a there's another, if podcast there's another series on, 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 on history of, of long dead Israeli parties. But Merits launched in 1992. It was the fresh, uh, uh, um, how to say, it, it was the best campaign that had been seen until then. And everybody said, well, all the campaigners are Merits voters anyway. And they had wonderful slogans. Probably the best slogan was Yumratz Rabin. Meretz obviously means vigor in Israel. We will vigorize Rabin. And the idea Invigorate, was, I think, is the word. Invigorate. Thank you. And I, I, I was wrong there. I knew. Um, it was, in many ways, the first two-for-one campaign, which has become a campaign used But explain mainly what that by, term means. Okay, so, and we'll I'll talk about it in a second. But it was a two-for-one campaign that we are going to support a Rabin government, but you need us there because we will make sure the Rabin government is some not some wishy-washy centrist leaning to the right thing. It's a true blue left-wing party. Uh, sorry, left-wing coalition. So the idea was... It was a full-court press campaign. That, that, that as well, but this really was a two for more. See what I did there? Else. Sports reference? Well, you know, this is... Uh, you know, it, I learned so the last best. episode, we're drinking. I'm saying nice things about pollsters. You're criticizing them. Uh, yes, it's, that's one of the things we can do on our last episode. But that that was very much a new thing then in campaigning. They're saying, they're saying yes, Rabin is going to be prime minister. We're going to support him, but you need us to give the extra boost to what you, the kind of policies you want to see a Rabin government pursuing. And you say, well, 
should, we should talk about that very quickly. The next party to do that very well has been Shas. Shas, when they finally kind of decided that we're no longer going to be moving between Labour and Likud, but they're firmly in Likud, Derry said one, one, Arya Derry said one uh, ballot paper, two, you get two things out of it, you get Netanyahu and you get all the tradition and the, the and the blessings and everything else that comes with voting for Shas. And on Tuesday, that was the first thing that Ben Gvir said when he arrived at the polling station in Kiryat Alba. Very early, I think he was the first party leader to vote. He was there about September 7. And he said, Petek had one ballot paper, a Netanyahu government, and a full-on right But the interesting government. thing is that this went on on both sides because also the Labour Party's final messages were all put, plastered all around. Yes, Tadavid. but Merav Michaeli was wait, not going to say, say first thing in the morning, Yair Lapid. She didn't wait till first thing in the morning. She was doing it for the last two weeks before the election, saying, let me explain what she was saying. It said one ballot paper, two victories. It was a very, it, almost precisely the same message. And she meant, of course, the bloc will win and you will have labor in the government. But it didn't work because she didn't really. She had, she, you could see she was gritting her teeth, almost literally when she said, yeah, Lapid. And we know that. Yeah, Merav Micheli, and we'll talk about labor in a moment, can't oh, and hasn't been capable of uh, of running labor as a supporting act. She knows that, she, that that's what she has to do, but she can't do it. So we spoke about Merit's birth. Let's talk about Merit's, looks like Merit's This episode demise. is going to be known as the life cycle of Merit's, birth and death. Okay, why did Merit's die? Why did Merit's die? First of all, I don't think Merit's voters died. I think that they made strategic choices. Some of them did. It's And by the way, it's true that among the 55 and plus population, we have higher portion of Israelis who self-identify as left wing. So some of them certainly did. I think for the most part, they just made strategic choices to vote for Yesh Atid or maybe Labour. Some of them, I think, were concerned by polls showing that, that Merit's was so close to the electoral threshold that it may go under. And I think people thought there's a snowball effect. They don't want to waste their votes on a party that might go beneath the threshold. As a result, they don't vote for it. And then it does go beneath the threshold, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but I think it's the same reason why the Labor Party basically lost 110,000 votes. You know, there's a lot of talk about what each campaign did wrong. Labor, we should say, crossed the threshold, not with any... Flying win. colors. No flying colors. And they're on only four seats. So they both lost a lot of votes. But I think for the most part, the center and left voters, and particularly the left-wing voters, were simply anguished about the idea of whether they should support the bloc, a big party within the bloc, how to use their vote best. And I don't think their ideology changed, but we have to remember that for all of the attempts to blame one or the other party for their campaign or their choices, lots of talk about whether Mirab Micheli made a big mistake by not merging the two parties, ultimately, the constituency of Israelis who consider themselves left-wing and those are the people who are voting for labor and merits, is very limited. Among the Jewish population, we're talking about 12%, between 11 and 13%, let's say, of people who self-define as left. And that breaks down, by the way, with more of them, the majority of that little group, who consider themselves moderate left, and only a small single-digit number who consider themselves firm left. And those are the voters, that firm left, who are more likely to vote for merit. So in any case, no matter what the campaigns do, they're starting from such a limited pool of people. And part of the illusion is that the left once ruled Israel. No, the left never ruled Israel. The historic Labour Party was not a left-wing party. It was a security-orientated very much a centrist party, which, yes, believed in running the economy on socialist lines because they thought that was the best way at the time 
to run the economy, but not out of a sense of some kind of broader left-wing progressive value. Because I think that's what the left stood for in that era. In other words, in the era before 67, certainly, the idea of what it meant to be left-wing was this socialist, utopian, state-planned economy. And state it wasn't at all utopian. It was very pragmatic. I know, but I think they thought it was utopian. I don't think they would would have agreed with that word. (laughs) No, but they they thought they were going to take care of the workers from birth to death in every part of life. And they did. And thanks to them, we still have universal public health care here in Israel. (laughs) Which some of us will need desperately after this episode. But I think that what we're seeing here is very much what I think I I, I warned of. We were sitting here, and this is the the one and only time I want to say I told you so in this podcast, because I, I really remember very... Very strongly, we're sitting here at the finale episode of season one, 16 months ago when the election over, and we were talking about, wow, how Merits and Labour, who were both under threat, had, had exceeded expectations. 13 seats. 13 seats, six to Merits. Resurrected Labour. And, and I said, no, this is a huge failure, because first of all, Labour and Merits were once had to get a 56 seats back in 1992. They're down to 13. That is no achievement and this is an illusion because they'll now they'll feel actually yes we can go it alone we don't need to merge to make sure that we both pass the threshold we'll we'll never have to do a gavald campaign again and lo and behold we're down from 16 to 4 merit is wiped out and the reason is that the israeli left such as it is has still not come up with a message beyond save us you need merits to save you from everything everything bad but they haven't come up with a positive message since the failure of the oslo process now i'm not saying that means that merits and labor should not continue talking about how we have to end the occupation that's the reason i voted merits but you have to come up with more messages you have to come up with a message which does resonate especially in an election like this where this was not the issue sadly the israel-palestine conflict is not the issue in this election i wish it was but it isn't as i've argued and you need to run a, relative, a relevant message in the in the election. Right. Although, as I've argued, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is always there like a specter hovering over people's initial choice about which bloc they vote for. I mean, anybody who in the bloc who supported Netanyahu will tell you first thing, I'm voting for whether it's Likud, Shas, religious Zionism, or Torah Judaism, because I think Israel needs to be strong and not give in to the Arabs. And that was the first thing Itamar Ben-Gvir said in his speech after on election night, he didn't. He said it in a sort of dog whistle way. He said, "We are the masters of the house here." Now, one party that didn't have a particular vision or message, but did have a very clear and pragmatic campaign running on its record, did very well, and that was Yesh Atid. They had six hundred fourteen thousand votes in twenty twenty one. They went up to, as of this count, seven hundred ninety two thousand, even almost seven hundred ninety three thousand. So they added like nearly one hundred eighty thousand votes, and those probably came directly at the expense of labor and merits. It seems very cut and dried, but maybe this is what we're seeing. People don't actually want those big vision, that big vision and ideology strategy. Maybe they just like having someone like Ishatid, which is pragmatist. But there was no big vision. You can't say people didn't want something if it wasn't on the menu. It's like you know, I. But they flocked I, I, to the party that didn't. You can't offer it. say that people don't want steak well, based uh, based on the orders in a vegetarian. Me- okay, in but a I think that Merritt did. I restaurant Merritt did not offer true. a big vision. Okay, I don't what think was it's an a, argument. What was Merritt's big vision? It's not a matter of big vision. They stand for liberal values, and they're very clear about that. I agree, and, and, and that's why I voted for them. But Fine. You need, so you, so that's but what I'm you need to articulate something more than that. What to I'm get saying is that the voters know. In other words, Likud doesn't even have a platform, but everybody knows what they stand for. And it's the same thing for Merit's voters. They all know what it is. You just said it. You know what they stand for. That's why you voted for them. So I, I disagree with that. I, I cannot agree with the fact that... So why that do you think Yeshatid did so well? Only 3.1% of Israelis 
agree with the, those values of merits that, that you said. I think there are more than them, but I think that you, it's not just that. There, there is a combination of things that people vote for in election. There are, there's, there's tribal affiliation, there's values, and there's a feeling that someone has is saying to you something that resonates with, okay. with well, you. Okay, well, let me tell you, from my experience when I worked on the campaign with Merits, okay, which was a long time ago now, and they didn't do very well under my tutelage. It was 2009, <clears throat> they lost half their seats. But I will say that something that lots of people told me who had been involved in many campaigns in Merits said, you know, one thing we always find out in the polling is that when we poll on the positions we stand for, 60% of Israelis agree with us. Exactly. But why don't they vote for them? And I know this from focus groups, many focus groups, among anybody in the center left, they say they don't even think about merits. Why? Because they're considered extreme left on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's it. And I hear people say to me, why does merits take this radical left position with, with relation to the Arabs or with relation to the territories? Now, merits didn't even talk about it very much, as you pointed out, but that is the image in people's minds. You cannot get it out of their minds. Pick a person on the street, and that's what they'll tell you. So last question about merits before we talk about Yeshatid. Is there a comeback? Because very few Israeli parties, there are couple of examples, but most Israeli parties which fall beneath the threshold and have no representatives in the Knesset don't come back from the dead. Well, it's interesting because Yamina came back after exactly. their, that's, that's, but that's, not for very long, the main, and now they're gone. But, they became, but, but its leader became prime minister, so, you know. That's true, but that was a very unusual situation. I mean, I think merits can come back. It may, it may be in a different form. It may merge with labor. It may do one of these, you know, reconstitution, being reconstituted or renamed to something else. But I do think that there is an audience for those values. Now, as I've argued, it's a very small, limited part of the population. Personally, I think we, we tend to blame the political system when it has to start a lot earlier. If you think that there's a need for a bigger uh, group of Israelis who support these values, these liberal values that apparently many more people do support and also believe that you cannot fulfill liberal democratic values unless you end the occupation, that they are completely tied together, that has to start young. It has to be part of the education system. I'm not saying this particular message. This is a, I don't want. I don't think the education system has to motif has to preach to people, but you do have to have a strong grounding in democracy, in civics, in a more genuine understanding of the values underlying a liberal society. And then I think people come to these conclusions on their own, but that's not the environment we live in right now. I so, agree. And maybe when we have an education and values podcast, we'll talk about that more at length. It's a good idea. Now, yes, I'm sure that it'll be very popular with the listeners. Let's talk about one of the biggest winners of the night. Really one of the yes, biggest winners. It's a tragedy. It's the biggest win, yes, but the I biggest did. loss. Well, well if it wasn't for religious Zionism putting on eight seats, Yeshatid would have been the biggest winner tonight. They won seven new seats. They it's went incredible. up by about, about, I think, about 40%. Well, we're still crunching the numbers, but... Yeah, but that's actually... I mean, they had six, Everyone said for so many years, Yaglapid's... Yeah. They, they, they talked about the Yaglapid ceiling being... He will never hit 20 seats. 24. 24. It's impressive. Almost, almost 180,000 new voters. So what is it? What, what, what's the magic? I mean, I'll tell you what I think. Okay, before, I mean, now that I've asked the question, I'd like to answer it. I think that Yair Lapid became prime minister, what was it, early July? And honestly, I think he did a good job. And not just that. I think that people in the center left... First of, first of July, so first of July. four months. He had exactly four months. Four months and he had this campaign day. ad where he said, you know, we tried to list all the things we did at when he, while he was prime minister, but it would have taken too long. And then they ran through them very quickly. And they really had a lot of stuff. Now, he ran on his record. I think people appreciated that he had a positive campaign. But I do think it goes, be, it goes beyond those four months that he was prime minister. I think over the course of these last five election cycles from 2019 onward, he was seen as somebody who brought something to Israeli politics that we never see, which, which is the ability to sacrifice his immediate political ambitions for the sake of 
the block, the bigger cause, merging with Benny Gans when it was needed, giving up on the premiership, which he really rightfully won in a way in 2021. Not that he was the biggest party, but that he was the biggest party in the block. And I think that the Israelis were impressed that he had made those moves over the years. He showed himself to have a lot of political savvy and this sense of self-sacrifice and willingness to see things in the long term. So is it fair to blame Lapid for saying, why didn't you look out for merits if it wasn't for your hoovering up or, or is the, as we're saying he were drinking the votes of your of the parties around you labor wouldn't have been so close to the threshold and, and Mertz would have crossed the threshold and, and think how different it was if you'd been a little less greedy Mertz would have crossed the threshold is that fair I mean, anybody can say anything they want, but I think it's practic- mainly it's speculation. There's no way to know if in the final count, the gap between 3.17% for merits and 3.25% for merits reflects, you know, uh, how many votes are they missing now, merits? Uh, 14,000? Let's, let's look, let's you know, look at, the, at the Gershoni people, dashboard. Is, 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 there, is, there an, is there an update? I mean, were they convinced? I'm sure by, all our listeners are like, just wait. There is an update, 11.40. Uh, an update of from three minutes ago, and merits still need over fourteen over fourteen thousand votes. So I mean, it's actually gone down. It's fourteen thousand and ninety four. Okay, so did those fourteen thousand people really, at the last minute, change their mind because of your repeat? I think that doesn't give enough credit to the voters. I think if there was a huge, if this was a big shift, massive transformation, maybe we could say that something about their campaign affected it. But merits only had uh, six seats in the outgoing Knesset anyway. Let me, let me ask you a question about about the way that pollsters and, and political strategists working for the parties, how they think. And someone said to me, Lapid's main advisor and pollster, Mark Mellon, a well-known Democratic pollster who's been working with Lapid for... for Many years, since the beginning, I think. Since yeah. the beginning of Yeshatid. Somebody, and some, and this is an Israeli strategist who, who has worked also in America, and he's a big admirer of Melman. He said to me, Mark is a great pollster, He's done great work in America in, on democratic campaigns. He's helped. Yes, he's brought Yeshatid to where it is now. But the problem is, is that this election needed somebody who could look at the strategy of an entire block of parties, and that's where Yeshatid's strategy failed. What do you think about that? I don't know. I mean, I, again, I don't know exactly what he advised Yair Lapid to do. Yair Lapid denied at a certain point that a that he was trying to suck up votes from the other two, b that the other two were in danger. So a lot of us got that wrong. Again, I think that we're talking about such tiny margins that it's a little bit dismissive of the voters. We do have so if twenty thousand voters had voted, uh, had voted differently and merits had crossed the threshold, we'd all be saying now Yair Lapid's exactly. a genius, and we'd be saying Merab Michaeli was a genius too because the the two parties combined would have gotten nine seats. Uh, let's I'm, say. I'm, I'm trying not to talk too much about Merab Michaeli because I think that. She's getting enough shit right now as it is her mis- her, her mistake, and it's now now it knows it, it, it was a mistake by fourteen thousand votes it was exactly. A but it was a mistake not to merge Labour. We now that you know you know that's right. retrospective. We I know will that say now. one voter who shall remain nameless, but in private conversation said to me, "May Rav Micheli should resign as head of the party and should refuse to be sworn into Knesset. She should give up her seat in Knesset because she made such a big mistake." Well, I think that's emotional. Well, I was just, I was just her, on, on the train now from Jerusalem and. I, I feel that because I don't think she did a great job as a transport minister, but that's another matter. But I will say, just to go back to one more little esoteric thing that uh, is coming from the Haredi parties, I don't remember if it was Shas or Torah Judaism, but I, I did see that one of those campaigns was saying, was get out to vote to the Haredi voters, vote for Shabbat, get out to vote for the sake of Shabbat. And they meant get out to vote so that we never have public So you mentioned the Haredi voters and one of the campaigns, we're talking now about Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, was, I can bring the Haredim vote for me. Don't vote for Yair Lapid. He can never be prime minister, but I can. 
They've they've won 12 seats now, according to the to the latest uh, update. They it could slip to 11. They began eight from Benny Gantz's Kacholavan and six from uh, uh, from Gideon Sauer's. So they had 14. They went so they down to 12. They went. They lost two, perhaps even three seats. Voters don't want to see Benny Gantz as prime minister with a, with a, with the Haredim in the same government. Do you know what I think is the most interesting thing about this is that this is the the party with the biggest heavy hitters in terms of security. And we used to always have this image in Israeli society in general in survey research that's that security is the most important thing and Israelis are obsessed with security. And I think we're seeing a completely different era now. I mean, at least or maybe what was always the case is now coming to the fore that Israelis really don't prize security as much as we thought. It maybe was always a means of saying the truth about what Israelis really want, which is nationalist triumph. But I'm so glad you brought that up because maybe you're right. Maybe the fact that this is a party packed with generals and all Chief this, staff, all this staff. security. We're talking about one type of security that's military. That's Tzahal, the idea. A lot of people have been saying in the last two days that this election has actually been about another type of security, that personal security where we're looking to the police, we're looking and, and we're looking at and who's going to be our next and minister of internal security? Maybe, maybe Bengvir. I'm, I he wouldn't. Wants it. I wouldn't put money on it. But a lot of people have been saying this has not been about the wider security where we look to where Israelis look to the IDF. It's been about the more local home security where people look to the police. And one of the failures of Labour has been Omar Barlev. He's been a very ineffectual public security or police minister. And a lot of people and. People are pointing to the to, to the votes in Lod, which went half to Balad. All the Arabs have voted for Balad, and all the and all the Jews voted for. Okay, this is an oversimplification for religious Zionism, but places where the impact of the of the events of May 2021 are still felt, and on the wider. Uh, in the negative, where there's a feeling of chaos and lawlessness and so on, this is something which has resonated with Israel, and we see that in the past, this is something that has shifted, and. I think the best example is actually one in which Labour won. In 1992, one of the things leading to Rabin's victory was the fact that there were stabbing attacks in places like Batiam that you just mentioned now in the weeks leading up to the election, and that shifted voters away from Likud, who were then in power, to Rabin, who was seen as a security figure. So maybe the generals like Gantz and Eisenkot, who's number three in the National Unity List, didn't do it. But maybe the fact that parties like, like Yeshatid or certainly Labour, who have should have been making more of an issue about personal security, failed to do that. I don't know. I think that there's three kinds of security we can talk about that have been part of the discourse in Israel, or at least parties have tried to make them part of the discourse. One is, of course, overall security, security related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether peace leads to security, that kind of security, or whether a tougher line leads to security. The other kind is the one you just mentioned. The third kind is what the left-wing parties have been trying to say, which is you need to have broader understanding of security, life security, economic security, social welfare security, and it never really works. They try and you see where they've ended up. Now, Shas is the party that talks about taking care of the poorest and they ran an entire campaign on hunger as if there are lots of ultra-Orthodox people going hungry because they can't afford the basic goods. What they really meant is that we have big families. We have to use paper plates and disposable items. We don't like this tax. We'd rather use those items. We don't care about the environment. We want to drink sugary drinks and juices and we don't want an extra tax on them. And anyway, I'm getting back to the issue. What they were talking about was an economic security for specific kinds of communities. So in any case, I guess the final point I want to make about security is that the one you were talking about, Angel, which I do think was a very central factor in this, is a little bit strange because in general, 
crime is not a huge problem in Israeli society, especially in the Jewish communities. It is an enormous problem in the Arab community, particularly around gang violence. And we have seen, you know, disproportionate numbers of homicides in the Arab communities, illegal weapons. This is really a scourge. But what I think Ben Gavir and his people are talking about when they say security, they have a particular they mean, meaning. We are the they landlords. Mean, they mean we are the landlords. We're going to crack down on the Arab community. It's going to be better for them. What, what they really mean is that we're going to control them more. And they have an, uh, an expanded version of a security threat or chaos that includes illegal construction, which is illegal because many of the Arab and Bedouin communities can't get permits because they don't have development plans and the government doesn't approve them. So they consider that they call it. They call it a crime. They call it a crime of, what do they call it? Crimes of developments, land crimes. They call it crime. And what that's what they mean. And governance. They talk about security. Governance. The governance. Mishilut. Right. So they have really, I think, tried to manipulatively redefine the concept of security in ways that I think are disingenuous. Now, we're talking about the Arabs. So something incredible happened with the Arab vote. First of all, the predictions that it would go down turned out to be wrong. It was about, it was, it's very difficult to assess exactly what the Arab vote because they're parts of the country in neighborhoods and towns Increasingly, where you have mixed right? neighborhoods and so on. But the research done after the last election in 2021 said about 45% of Israeli Arabs voted. And the initial research that we have now it uh, suggests more, 50% si- or even over so, so even, 55%. even 55% so it, it was up by 5 to 10% and something even more fascinating happened in the result we had three parties we had Ram, Khadash, Tal and Balad all of them not certainly crossing the threshold two of them crossed the threshold quite well Ram is now on 4.2 and Khadash is now on 3.9 so they've both got more than Labour which is incredible. And Balad, which nobody expected, still got quite close. They're now on 2.96%. Which was better than all of their polls. Better than all their polls. It wouldn't have taken, if the Arab vote had gone up to 60, which is still over 10% lower than the overall, on, or 15% lower than the Jewish vote, Balad would have crossed. Balad could have crossed. All three That's of true. them. And it's interesting that Ram came first. Which is the first as well. The Islamist party is now the most popular party in the Arab sector. Yeah, but as we've discussed many times, I think a, lo- a number of their of their voters don't, no, no, didn't not all vote of them. Islamists. No. no, right. No, pers- they not, voted not just that because they, they want them to be in the coalition. Exactly. I think that was the dividing line in the Arab community that we know generated a big discussion and conversation about whether we support a party that supports going into the government. Which, by the way, after everything that happened, after all the criticism of Ram for going into the government, everything that happened while they were in the government, polls towards the very end still showed that a majority of the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel still prefer for one question. of the parties they represent to well, go I'm, into I'm the government. Seeing it now, Ram came first in front of Hadash Tal, which are two parties, including Hadash, the oldest party of well, the Arab Jewish, but it's an Arab party. And Balad and Hadash Tal are ambivalent; they're not necessarily against going on the right circumstances. And Balad say, "We will never go into as long as Israel is a Jewish state and not a state of all its citizens. We will never be in a government." So it's interesting. They were they were close. It's I will not, say they're, yeah. they're not big margins between those three parties: two point ninety six, three point eighty five, four point ninety. Not huge margins, but the most pro integrationist being in any coalition party came first. The party which says we, we we would consider going into coalition came second, and the party which says 
no to any coalition in the, under the current definition of Israel as a Jewish state came last. I think that uh, to try to explain how voter turnout seems to have gone significantly up, at least from the lowest polls. I mean, the lowest polls we saw over the course of this campaign cycle were about 32 percent. Who I mean, said they were, they were yes, terrible polls. Horrible. So I think the reason we can explain this by, if, if you know, the, well, at least what I've seen is that towards the very end of the campaign, the party leaders, as much as despite all their animosity between one another, they really unified to uh, project a very, very strong get out the vote message. There was no significant call for boycotting the elections, as we have sometimes seen in the past. The voters weren't there and the party leaders weren't there. And not only that, you know, our my, one of my colleagues and friends, Adi Bawad, who we wanted on the show but wasn't able to come that day, told me, you know, in the Arab press, one of the interesting things is that they're not actually doing a lot of mudslinging against one another, which is interesting because in the Jewish parties, that's, you know, a lot of what they did was muzzling against one another. That's what they always do. And they've done it in the past. And they have done it in the past, of course. But he said, you know, in general, they have been pretty civil to one another. It's like they understood that the voters don't like when these three parties or three factions fight together, but they didn't but they didn't take it seriously enough to actually stay together as the joint list. So that, in my mind, is also one of the things that could be discussed as a mistake. But this is the reality. Dalia, this is despite the results. When you come alive, you've got so much new data, real data, not polling data, actual human beings, not samples of human beings voting, millions and millions of votes coming in. And you can go online and see every single place in the country, every polling station. I know you've been having a lot of fun and it's, I have been having so much and fun. it's helping you kind of get over the, the results, which haven't been that haven't made us so happy. What's your favorite? polling station in the country? Oh, my favorite polling station? Well, first of all, I want to say that anybody who is as nerdy as I am and really wants to go through every single vote, the percentages, the absolute numbers, the tiny little parties that didn't cross the threshold, which I would like to mention some of them as well. Anybody who is like me, if I have any kindred spirits out there, I would like to give a little free advertising to the Central Election Committee, which did a great job in this campaign, as it usually does. And the the data are extremely transparent. They put them all on the Central Election Committee website. I don't know if they have it in English, but they definitely have it in Hebrew. Uh, I think in the end they will have it in English, and you can look at the play-by-play of every single vote breakdown. One more point I want to make before I get into my favorite Kalpi. That is that the polling in Kalpi is the ballot Hebrew. station. Yes. Yeah. Just one more point about survey research. You know, it turns out survey respondents are human beings as well, Angel, not only real voters. Yes, but they're a sample, a weighted <laughs> they are sample. sample. But I will say that on election night, when we saw the projections come in, I thought, oh, my gosh, the polls got it completely wrong. There, how, how did this happen? There was a time there was a, some of the exit polls show the two Haredi parties together getting 22 seats as opposed to 15. I thought, oh, my God, how did they get this so wrong? But in the final count, they were they only got 19 a little in the bit final off. Count. Yes, it's which is so three. Yeah. No, I know. But that's four more than they were getting in every single survey up until now. So that's a little off. But it's actually only a couple of percentage points off, still within the margin of error. I'm still waiting for your favorite Kalpi. Okay. Uh, this is a small kibbutz in the Negev, to paraphrase a certain first prime minister of Israel. Uh, and I considered it like the Lake Wobegon of Israel for American listeners who know what I'm talking about. 249 people voted. 247 of those were legitimate votes. Interestingly, there were 463 eligible voters listed. What happened to them? Did they just not turn out? Were they complacent? Is that why labor didn't do that well? Were these people who moved away from the Negev and never changed their address and didn't feel like hauling maybe they're all, way down? Maybe they're all active soldiers and they voted in military. Uh, maybe. Ballots. So only 54% turnout. But here's the breakdown. Maybe they're the, the, maybe they're the merits missing voters. Maybe they're the missing voters. So... 34% of them voted for Yesh Atid, so well above his average, which is about 20, what are we up to now, 20, He's, he's now, hold on, he's now on 18%. Uh, 18%, sorry. So, so first of all, that's notable that in this small kibbutz in the Negev, Yesh Atid got 
Labor only got 21%. Now, the National Unity run by Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar got 17%. Meretz got 10%. But in a kibbutz. In a kibbutz. And Likud got 7%. And Religious how- Zionism got 4%. And 2% went to Hadash. How many anti-vaxxers? I didn't look at the anti-vax party, but since you asked, I will tell you that in general throughout the entire country, nearly 14,000 votes went to the Corona denialist anti-vax party. And that's even more than the economist Yaron Zaricha, whom I know you really appreciate, Yanchel, who only got about 12,600 votes. But it's amazing that if there are 14,000 votes. only the anti-vaxxers voted merits. Uh, do you think they came from merits? Oh, but what no, about And so. what about Hadar Mukhtar, your favorite? My favorite. I got more phone calls from young people on fire, like robocalls, than all the other parties together. I got I dozens got one. and dozens. I got Hadar Mukhtar calling me on election day five times. And I, where's the money coming from? I don't know, but why did I also get push notifications to go vote from Israel Benvir? Somebody's algorithm and is not working well. did you get the fake well. Bengvi, which is actually with the... The wrong Shaked letter. letter. No, I did not I get that. that. I got that one But what well. I will say is that when Hadar Mukhtar finally did call me in a robocall, I have late? a call... Uh, no, I have a caller ID program that registered, oh, her, me, yes. that registered her name as Hadar Mukhtar the liar. <laughs> Angela, you have a wrap-up insight that I would like you to So share. I would just think, you know, I, I was thinking, what is my... You know, we talked a lot on Party Animal. We had uh, on every other episode of this... Obviously, we talk about history. And I, I was looking back at the results of elections past. This is going to end 64-65 to Netanyahu, the far right, and uh, the Haredi parties. And it's not the first time. In 1988, 65, Likud, parties to its right, and the Haredim won 65 as well. Four years later, Yitzhak Rabin was elected. Not everything that Rabin did came to fruition, but... There's a lot of talk about this inevitability of demographics in Israel. The Haredim are growing, the right wing are growing, they're having children. That, yes, demographics is certainly a big component, a big element of political behavior and voting patterns. It's by far not the only one. Many people listening to us will be downhearted right now. I think we should acknowledge that for a moment. We might even be among them. We are definitely among them. And yet we're sitting here in Tel Aviv drinking our whiskey Dalia just made a very important point of what an excellent job the Central Election Commission has done, despite all the political pressures on it. We've had a free, transparent election. Every election like that has, has been like that in Israel in, in, in the last century. Yes, there are problems. No, it's just that I can't help yes, but wonder. Yes, there are six million Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. And Israel, well, that's not an aside, not exactly. It's not an aside. It's a whole, it's a, it's a whole yeah. podcast series. But the fact <laughs> that Israel important. does have open, transparent elections, which change governments. We've just changed the government. I know, that but is I, a I sign of democracy. Wonder. I know, but can't, don't, you, don't you also wonder what would have happened if Netanyahu's bloc hadn't won? Of Wouldn't course. they have challenged the Central Election Committee? They of course, were already they were already doing it. I know. And the CEC was standing up and, and they were saying, and very, there was Netanyahu was uh, in, in those moments between the exit poll and when we started seeing the real result, when it seemed that Ballad could cross the threshold and it would be 60-60 and Netanyahu would have failed to win his majority, Netanyahu was already saying, oh, I'm getting multiple rec- reports of fraud. It wasn't working. It wasn't catching. It wasn't even catching on social media except amongst the hardcore BB proxies. The news were not believing him. The Central Election Commission and the police were immediately putting out a, a statement saying this is not true. So... I think this election, even if Netanyahu had been close to, to, to losing and he had tried to, and he was trying to launch a, a stop the steal, I think that the process was strong enough. Sadly, the process brought a result that we are not happy with and that makes us very worried for the Israeli future. However, there is still a lot 
to be thankful for the fact that we have once again the 25th Knesset election held this this transparent robust electoral process there's a lot to be thankful and this is what gives us hope that we'll be sitting here perhaps on this podcast or in other podcasts or other forms of media reporting different results after another election because elections in Israel do make a difference and do change governments and that's and that is the ultimate test let's hope this won't be our last and on that optimistic note I'm not going to ask you, Dahlia, how soon we'll be having another election because that's just too that's Since just, I've had one depressing. little shot of whiskey, I will just say this. We'll meet again. And on that optimistic note, thank you, dear listener, for bearing with us throughout this long summer campaign. We hope you, we've provided you with some light moments amidst all the gloom. Thank you, Dr. Della Shendlin. Thank you, Angel Pfeffer. For joining me on this voyage of the damned. Our producer today was Shani Aviram. I'm Anshul Pfeffer in Harrit Studios in the Rebel Republic of Tel Aviv, wishing you farewell and be safe. Bye. Bye.